This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. right effort is remarkably different in that it's the effort to surrender. It's not the effort to change or fix or do anything. It's the effort to keep remembering that our true nature is already whole and that the trying to make things better is just reifying the delusion that it could be better because it's perfect already. It's whole already. There's nothing that isn't here. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome, everybody. I'm Ram Dave, also known as Dale Borglum to my parents and a lot of other people. Today, I would like to talk about right effort and surrender. We've been talking about so many different practices over the months and years that we've been together. And these are really wonderful practices, but there's one problem with them, that they only work if you do them. (laughs) I know so many great practices that I don't do. So consequently, motivation, intention, right effort is essential on the spiritual path. Whether you're on a devotional path, you're on a meditative path, you're on a Buddhist path, you're on a path of service, it really all boils down to motivation in a very fundamental sense. We've been talking about this developmental path where we go from the Hinayana or invocation, trust stage, to the heart stage, to the tantric stage. And as I was thinking about this talk over the last several days, it really is clear to me that that this concept of right effort changes as we go through the path, as we become more, quote, advanced, unquote, practitioners. And at the same time, it's cyclical. That even when we're advanced practitioners, again and again, we have to go back to the beginning. Something you'd say to a very beginning practitioner, or when you're in the beginning stage yourself, that happens again and again for each of us, of course, is not necessarily what you would say to somebody who's deeply into Dzogchen. In Dzogchen, the idea is no effort. 
no trying, that it's it's all one, that trying to improve your practice, creating effort is based on an I who's trying to do something, which is fundamentally delusional because there isn't an I in in that sense. And it's from the, from the standpoint of all one, from pure consciousness. But most of us aren't in that place most of the time. So there's, there's a concept in Buddhism that really applies to all paths of right effort. What is the right effort in the situation? And it certainly is, on the other hand, possible, and I'm a living example of this, to get stuck in trying too hard, right? That you get stuck in a place where I'm practicing because I feel inadequate. I've got to get somewhere. And even then, as the mind begins to calm down and the heart begins to open, we're caught in this place of feeling I'm inadequate uh, and I'm not even being aware of, I'm not surrendering into the next stage that's right there in front of us. So let's talk a bit about this evolution of right effort going from I'm doing this to no effort at all. How right effort, how motivation, how surrender, how grace, how these things unfold in your life. The Buddha was very much into telling people to practice hard. And a lot of a lot of Buddhists even talk about practice as if your hair were on fire. My experience is that most of the people are saying that have a shaved head, right? <laughs> that, that they can say that because there's no hair to burn. I mean, think about what it'd be like to practice your hair on fire. What a silly idea. Anyway, in the beginning, motivation comes from wanting to not suffer. And it evolves it into wanting to love, love other people, love the Dharma. It, and then it goes into tantric abundance and finally into the, the guru, no effort, it's all grace. But in the beginning, practice is based on the effort to go beyond suffering, to be a happier person, both individually and collectively. I. In America, in the Declaration of Independence, it says we're dedicated to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It doesn't say anything about death, responsibility to the community, or the causes of suffering, right? So even collectively, we're living in a society that's not particularly focused on dealing with motivation in terms of being with suffering. This wanting to be free of suffering is the fundamental motivation that leads to right effort. Some Dharma teachers are reluctant to push teacher, uh, students, practitioners into trying harder. But in the beginning, I think it's very, very necessary because there is so much momentum behind being lost in the conditioned mind. And it really takes a deep willingness to sit still and begin to look at how Suffering is being caused not by the environment, but by how, in fact, we're relating to the environment. So the first step is to acknowledge the urge to get away from suffering and then to begin to not act on that urge, to, to feel that urge to get away from suffering, to acknowledge that's what you're doing, and then to become familiar with that urge to get away from suffering. To, to be able to sit with uncomfortable feelings. And that's a major step on the path. Can you sit with 
being uncomfortable and not immediately, automatically, unconsciously, can I not automatically push that away and turn to a distraction, turn to some frantic attempt to not feel that suffering? Essentially, we're talking about a deep willingness to be mindful of feelings, not even emotions, but the positive, neutral, or negative feelings that are associated with each experience. The great Christian theologian Richard Rohr says, all spirituality is about what we do with our pain. All spirituality is about what we do with our pain. And really, if we even take this first part of the path deeply to heart, everything else is going to fall into place. Because if we're willing to deal with our pain that leads to our suffering, the heart is going to open, the tantric understanding of the sacredness of everything is going to appear. But this, this willingness to be hopeless about the present moment. And by that, I mean, in this moment where there is suffering, can you give up hope that this moment is going to be different? It's exactly what it is. It might get better in the future. In fact, it will get better in the future. It will get worse in the future, too. But to have this deep motivation where you're applying right effort, in this case, to complete surrender, radical surrender into this moment, no matter what it is that you're feeling, letting go of the need to distract from suffering. Suzuki Roshi, one of my favorite quotes, you probably heard me say it 10 times. He said, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. So in the beginning, what is the most important thing for you? As a contemplation, really think about what is the most important thing? What is it you really want? And if it is freedom, if it is loving other people, is if it is being a compassionate human being, then can we create right effort to bring that into manifestation? A few talks ago, I mentioned the four kinds of laziness. And laziness, obviously really hooks into motivation and particularly this first stage of motivation, the four kinds of laziness. The first one is wanting to be comfortable. The usual thing I'd rather lie in bed with a glass of wine and Netflix than sit on my cushion and look at my narcissism and cowardice, right? Okay. Who wouldn't? So it takes some motivation to not do that. But the second kind of laziness is being busy. Being busy is a way of distracting yourself from sitting with the way suffering is being created. Motivation here, right effort here, manifests as creating time in your life to sit down and rest or meditate or relax. My partner, Natalie, is putting on my calendar times every day where I can't do anything, right? That's the idea, that we're, we're, we're going to start really putting in the calendar. Here are times during the day where it's not about getting things done. It's about not being busy. It's about not being distracted by busyness. Okay. The third kind of laziness is doubting that you can even get anything done 
why would I meditate because I'm such a lousy meditator or something? And the fourth kind is being cynical. Well, I see the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but I'm just one person. So I'm not going to try to do anything because the problems are overwhelming or my problems are overwhelming or their problems are overwhelming. So there's laziness, there's motivation, how these things are interacting. And I find that motivation leads to intention, leads to commitment, leads to vows. Motivation, motivation to not be distracted, motivation to not be lazy. You make an intention. And intention comes from the old root word. It's French, it's Old English, it's Latin, entender, meaning to stretch. You're stretching yourself by intending to be somebody who part of the day is not being distracted. And intention leads to commitment. I'm going to do that. And then finally, even taking a vow, not just having this like cool idea, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But when you take a vow, you're much more likely to notice that you've broken the vow than if you just have some vague intention, oh, I'd like to not judge other people or whatever it might happen to be. Okay. Motivation leading to an intention to do something about it to really committing to doing something about it, to making a vow. And one can also work with contemplations. You're going to die, but you don't know when. Or the contemplation of how deeply your heart yearns for connection. And not just as an intellectual idea, but as something that over the course of weeks or months, you take some contemplation and really let it deeply sink into you. What if the contemplation were, I have a deep yearning to connect, connect with myself, connect with God, connect with other people. And it's not even thinking about it. It's just letting that sink in or this, this motivating truth that life is precious, that this moment, this lifetime, is so precious, how that would begin to change things as a way of deepening motivation. What we're talking about here is being with how causes of suffering are unfolding in our lives and how we're creating suffering. And as we're getting better at doing that, it creates a sense of spiritual confidence. Instead of being at the mercy of suffering, we're seeing we can be with it. And as we feel this confidence, the mind begins to stabilize and relax. The heart begins to open. The heart of compassion, the heart of loving kindness, the heart of forgiveness, of gratitude. And now we begin to acknowledge as a way of motivating our need for connection, for love, for compassion, for devotion. The great Indian saint Ramakrishna said, our duty is to fall down in the door where others only bow. Okay, getting to that point where at least sometimes during the day, you see the sacredness of nature or of the person sitting in front of you or the person smiling back at you in the mirror. And it just rips your heart open. The Hasids say there's nothing more whole than a broken heart. We've all felt that. Everybody in this room has felt that. And everybody in this room has got lost in so much activity and laziness and confusion 
that that sense is completely gone for shorter, longer periods of time. So that the second level of trust, the second level of right effort is beginning to reach out for and, and get the fact that we are supported, that love, that compassion are available in each moment. Here are a few things that Maharaji said. He said, the, the only thing that is important is how much you love God. The only thing that is important is how much you love God. He said, it is better to love God than to try to figure everything out, right? I have a PhD in trying to figure everything out. <laughs> I actually do. <laughs> okay. I have a BS, an MS, and a PhD. It means bullshit, more shit, and piled higher and deeper. This state of connectedness and interdependence, uh, this state of beginning to admit that a deeper motivation for practice is to alleviate the suffering of other beings. The first stage I was talking about was looking at our own suffering. Hinayana literally means lesser vehicle. You're creating a vehicle big enough only for you to get across the ocean of suffering. Now, Mahayana, we're talking about a vehicle that's big enough to get everybody across the ocean of suffering. So that you're practicing for your children, you're practicing for the planet, you're practicing for your partner, you're practicing for Donald Trump, you're practicing for on and on. Okay, so this trusting that we are supported and beginning to have compassion for our own pain and for the pain that's out there. So we're going from being willing to be directly with our suffering letting go of the narrative, feeling it in the body, being with it intimately and directly, to now adding another part of our relationship with it, to letting it being a loving and compassionate relationship. There's two things to do now. You're being with the pain of your own and of the world, and you're opening your heart to it. You're becoming a bodhisattva. Somebody said, being a bodhisattva is like being on a sinking ship and being the last one to get off. You're vowing that you're there to alleviate suffering. And for many people, myself certainly included, practicing for other people is a much stronger and alive and juicy motivation than doing it just for myself. But I only got to that point, and I think most people only get to that point after their own suffering is not overwhelming. Right In the beginning, I was drowning, and I needed to practice for myself enough that I got to the point where I wasn't drowning. I thought, oh, okay, I can deal with this, and I can start practicing for everybody. And once again, it's cyclical, as a dear friend of mine went, once said, that it, it goes back and forth between I'm, I'm practicing for myself, I'm practicing for everybody, and sometimes life impinges or arises in a way that we have to go back to the beginning and be with our own suffering without any sense of shame or guilt about doing that. That's what needs to happen in the moment. Julian of Norwich, my favorite Christian saint, says, separation from God is the only pain a loving soul must reject. Everything other than this is good. Separation from God is the only pain 
a loving soul must reject. So all the other pains, your body hurts, politics are crazy, the planet's warming up, all these things are happening. But if you're staying connected to God, you can deal with all of that. There's a motivation, the right effort now is to keep finding that loving connection, that compassionate connection. Okay, and then as, as the heart stage deepens, as compassion deepens, we come to the tantric stage of motivation and of right effort. And tantra is acknowledging our yearning for deep meaning, that in the beginning, we were focusing on the content of experience, right? I'm mindful of the way suffering is here, the causes of suffering. Then the second stage, we're being with our relationship with the suffering. But now we're, we're getting to this yearning for a deeper meaning. There's suffering in the world. There's suffering in our bodies at times. There's un, unimaginable suffering in the world. I was looking at the news this morning and a, a train in India uh, had a wreck and at least 260 people died. And I was just trying to imagine people in the train minding their own business. And all of a sudden, this train goes flying into another train, bodies flying through the train car, 900 people injured, over 260 people killed, dramatic, small things like happening like that are happening all the time. Is it possible to find that in the midst of all of this, that not only can we be with what it feels like, not only can we open our hearts to it, but we can find that there's even meaning in the suffering of the world. Tantra is essentially releasing all of our goals and attainments. We're letting go of all attachment through love. Instead of trying to control things in a, a yogic way, it's uh, surrendering into pure awareness. Indulgence with awareness rather than control with awareness. The beloved can only be everything, whether it feels good or whether it feels bad. Now, the effort is to find that sacredness in each moment, the mundane moments, the fantastic moments, the really difficult moments. Every place is sacred ground because every place is potentially an encounter with the sacred. My, my first guru, Bob Dylan, said, I don't believe in emotion. Great sages use their hearts. Their hearts don't use them. We get caught in our emotions. In Tantra, the deeper the emotion, the greater the opportunity for awakening. There's a, a strong reaction to a train wreck. There's a strong reaction to feeling love for somebody. And it's so easy to get lost in those feelings. Can we use the depth of emotion, the depth of feeling to bring us to even this is sacred? And here's a very short line from Kabir. Everybody knows that the drop merges into the ocean, but few know that the ocean merges into the drop. When we were with Maharaji, occasionally he'd send us all away for a few days because he said, I'm getting attached to you. You've got to get away here so I can get over my attachment, which seemed kind of remarkable to me. But I mean, is it possible that not only are we, not only are we yearning for God, but that God is yearning for us and that we have to accept that yearning coming from the other direction? And finally, we get to non-duality, non-effort, non-dual mindfulness. What you are looking for is who is looking. Thoughts are not a distraction. 
what I alluded to in the beginning, eventually we get to the place where effort is a problem or more accurately, right effort is remarkably different in that it's the effort to surrender. It's not the effort to change or fix or do anything. It's the effort to keep remembering that our true nature is already whole and that the trying to make things better is just reifying the delusion that it could be better because it's perfect already. It's whole already. There's nothing that isn't here. We're giving up the identity of, I need to fix something. I need to become better. And in a way, that's the function of being around the guru, that she or he sees you in that wholeness. Can you look around your, your computer screen right now and see all these faces, some of which you've seen before, probably a lot of which, oh, there's Zach and there's Fran and there's Meadows and there's all these different people, right? And see that in each, each one of those faces. And can you see in your own face, can you see that? Can you see that wholeness? In observing the quality of our effort to practice, it's very useful, it's imperative occasionally to step back and take a very broad view of our practice. What's going on? Am I becoming a kinder person? My effort, the quality of my effort has really changed over the decades. I mean, in the beginning, I was so unhappy in my body. I, I meditated almost till my knees fell off. I, I did so many long retreats, and it was all based on who I feel myself to be now is not somebody I want to be. I want to be somebody better. And gradually, the heart opened. I, I met Maharaji, and still, he saw me in that way. I could only do that sporadically. Gradually, I began to accept myself more and more. And now, my effort is a lot more subtle. It's not based on I need to fix things. There's, there's such a difference between practicing because you're pushing away things you don't like versus being attracted to wholeness, being attracted to beauty, being attracted to connection. Developing the sense of balance between worldly responsibilities and our spiritual practice is extremely important. Without it, we fail. For instance, Deciding what to eat and what to avoid, as well as how much to eat and when to stop, and choosing what is healthier not, requires a sense of balance as long as we're dealing with the relative truth of the conditional world. How we eat, how we talk, how we sleep, all that is part of this right effort. And finally, a quote from the humorist E.B. White, he said, When I awake in the morning, I am torn between a desire to enjoy the world, and to improve the world. It makes it very hard to plan my day. With that, let's open this up to discussion. I really would love to hear what people have to say about how right effort has changed in your life, what it's like right now, what motivates you. Hi, Ram Dave. Hi, everybody. Um, in thinking about motivation uh, to practice, I. I'm definitely of the busy, lazy variety of person. I find it very difficult to sit down. I've sat zazen for years and years, um, like five to seven years ago, started feeling 
like I wanted something more heartful, um, if that makes any sense. And right now, um, I find one of my perceived barriers to practice is feeling like I'm, I want to deepen my practice, but I feel stuck. Like, I don't know what to, to do. <laughs> like I'm sort of feeling like, oh, I want a formal teacher or like a spiritual babysitter. I don't know. <laughs> um, do you have any advice for how to like go about continuing practice when you feel like maybe a lack of guidance or because I tend to just consume information, read books, 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 books. And I'm like, okay, that's great. But yeah, I feel like I need something else. I don't know. So what kind of practice, what kind of practice have you been doing or are you doing? And it's okay to say none at all. Yeah. Uh, as of late, not much. I still, I still sit Zazen. Um, I think that that's my like comfort zone. So that's, when I feel stuck, I'm like, well, I'll just do that because I read a lot of books. I think I've read everything that Ram Dass has written, tons and tons of books about Zen Buddhism. Um, and I've, I find that's kind of where it stops. Like, Okay. You're into Zen and you're into Ram Dass. The, the Ram Dass part of you, is there some devotional quality that maybe there's a God up, out there in there or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, the the goddess really appeals to me, Kali, um, and so I I listen to talks, um, I listen to lectures. I used to go to Zen temples, but I don't do that anymore um, because I feel pulled more towards this direction. So here he, here are a couple of things I could say. One is feel that yearning and use that as motivation for asking. I I want the next step. I'm feeling stale. I'm feeling confused, whatever you're feeling. I'm not putting, trying to put words in your mouth, but really ask the universe, ask the goddess, what is the next step? And then the other thing I would suggest, instead of reading a bunch of books, go on the internet and Krishnadas has a Thursday night thing where he chants. My friend Jay Utal, who I went for a hike with yesterday, has his own YouTube channel where he's got free material and online stuff. Uh, there are certainly devotional teachers out there. If you look at uh, my podcast channel, it's part of a larger thing called the Be Here Now Network. Be Here Now Network .com, where there are there's Krishnadas and Lama Suryadas and Sharon and Jack and Joseph and Raghu and all kinds of. Uh, particularly Raga was bringing on all kinds of teachers. Just keep your heart open to finding somebody that might take you the next step. And it might be a small step. It might be instead of here's your teacher for the next two decades of your life, it might be for the next year that you're you're into chanting or you're into, there's a woman named Uma Reed who does Kali pujas occasionally. She was, she's in, the Maharaji satsang. I remember before I met Maharaji, I was getting my PhD at Stanford. I was taking psychedelics and something in me was literally screaming for the next step. And Ramda showed up in my life and he brought 
Maharaji into my life. And then a bunch of years later, my practice was getting stale. I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I just didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I had my PhD. I wasn't using it. I was living with some friends doing menial labor, essentially. And I made a commitment to myself that I was going to meditate two hours every day, no matter what. One day we were really busy at work. I didn't get, and there was a party in the evening. I didn't start meditating till 11. And I sat there for two hours, half asleep. But every day I did that. And boom, something really appeared in my life because I, I just made a commitment. I need, I need the next thing. I'm going to sit here until it shows up. And it did. It turned out to be Ramdas and Joya and that whole thing, which it had its own ups and downs there. But something really happened because I committed my life to, uh, I need something now. And something in me is, is like almost demanding. God seems pretty amenable to threat. I mean, you say, come on, damn it. I mean, I, I need some answers now. You can plead, you can beg, but but threatening is good too. To me, that that quality of really admitting your yearning and then like the thing I was saying before that motivation goes to intention, goes to commitment, goes to vow. And so you've got some motivation that you'd like to have the next stage in your practice. Create an intention out of that. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Hi, morning, Dale. Thank you very much. Just what you were saying there and what Leila was talking about, you, know, you mentioned at the end there sort of demanding stuff. Um, Sri Ramakrishna, um, that's the way he approached Kali. He was very, very demanding, and she eventually showed up for him. Um, and if Leila still likes reading books, the um, um, what's it called? The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. Right, that's right. It's um, one of my all-time favorite books. Yeah, and I was, uh, well, I was going to say, you know, something that motivates me is something that Ramakrishna said: is that the purpose of, I think he said, the purpose of life or the purpose of living is the realization of God. And when I get to a point where I'm losing motivation, things like that, I just I think of that right. um, saying of his that. That's really what it's all about. And, you know, you just got to, I have to just keep remembering that. And that, that's what I find is my, is my motivation. So Ramakrishna was so committed to his practice that for a time he was really in love with Krishna. 
so he dressed up like one of the gopis, like a female devotee. He wore a sari and bangles so that he could be Krishna's beloved. And when he really got into Hanuman, he lived in a tree for a while. I mean, that's how that's how committed Ramakrishna was. So probably if you got a job like Layla's got some job up there in Oregon or wherever, she's probably not going to be living in a tree for a while. But, but uh, take that as a metaphor. And Ramakrishna also said, people shed a jug full of tears for their wife and for their money. If you cried as much for God, you'd be enlightened. <laughs> so I have a question for you, because you, where you started out was sort of perfect, which has to do with... Um, and, and then it wasn't so perfect? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, go on. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm just recovering from a health challenge and of a respiratory thing. And I, you know, you, I'm just curious about something. I, I didn't have COVID, but when you said that you had COVID and you went through a really rough time, how did, how were you? How was your mind when you were um, just feeling ill and and uncertain and 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 just in that space? I mean, right. what did you do with your mind? Okay. Well, there were two distinct stages that I related to incredibly differently. The first stage was I was really sick. For for two days, I had everything. I had diarrhea. I was vomiting. Uh, I had a fever. I had muscle aches. I had a headache. I had a horrible cough. I mean, it was just like my body was almost uninhabitable. In that stage, I felt really wonderful. Because it was clear I wasn't the body. The body was hurting a lot. And I was just kind of lying there. People were bringing me tea. And I actually wasn't at home then. I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico on a fundraising expedition. That, that, that part was okay. Then the next week or two was there was a lot of coughing. And it was a little harder because I was trying to live my life a little bit. But the hardest part was there was like a long tail where I had a some neurological impairment. For a while, I couldn't type. My fingers and my brain weren't connected in some way. And I couldn't meditate. I would sit down and my mind, it just wouldn't focus. Like from the, from the beginning to the end, there was, no, there was no increased mindfulness. There was no increased concentration. There was no depth of the heart. And it was very frustrating. And I thought, well, maybe it'll be like this forever. I sure hope not. But that part I didn't like. Because basically, I, I couldn't feel my connection to people or to God. I was just, there was some kind of brain, severe brain fog going on. So, you know, in each of these three stages, I was trying to work with what was what was going on. I was trying to have compassion for myself and, and realize that people were dying of COVID. And here I had brain fog instead of being at death's door. The one thing I could do is I could cultivate compassion for all the people with COVID. Because I knew, you know, I, I was instead of all the woe is me, I tried to globalize. I tried to open to the other people who were suffering. Even the stages I was talking about today, working with my own suffering, but then compassion for all the other people and seeing that even this is Kali's dance. The Kali was like dancing on my chest. I've got a, a big statue of Kali 
on top of Shiva. Shiva's lying there looking pretty happy and Kali's got her sword and she's standing on his chest. And even that, I mean, you know, like when you're dying, you might be having a lot of pain in your body. When you're dying, you, your, your brain might be all fogged up because of drugs that you have to take or lack of oxygen in your brain or whatever it is like that, right? Every moment is open to awareness. Some awareness will be a lot less uh, refined than others, to be sure. But there's never any reason to give up. I mean, you can always keep being with what's going on. One can have love and compassion in the moment. The, the, The quality of it, it might not be ecstatic. It might not be something you're preferring, but there's a difference between preference and, and attachment here that are we attached to being healthy? One day you're not going to be healthy right now. You're not healthy. Kali doing her dance. Let's go back to Kali. I mean, Ramakrishna was a devotee of Kali. Kali and Shiva are the fast path, right? It's like, it's, it's the path of fire and transformation. It's not like gradual devotion, but saying, come and burn up that which is impure. I'm ready. Eat, devour what I'm holding on to. Here, eat this part of me. I offer it to you. Rather than, oh my God, this hurts. Right? So, okay, eat it up. Eat it up. And Ramakrishna, his favorite poet was this guy, Ram Prasad Sen, who had this one of my favorite poems. I'm going to paraphrase, but the first couple lines, Ram Prasad was also a devotee of Kali. And in the poem, he said, In this life, O Mother Kali, either you will devour me or I will devour you. I vow that it is you that I will devour. (laughs) And what he meant by that is that when we're lost in the world, we're being devoured by the world. When we're present, when we're grounded, when we're centered, when we're open-hearted, we're devouring life moment to moment to moment. I just love that image of devouring life. It's devouring life no matter what the content is. It's not depending on pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral content. It's being devoured. Whatever's going on, I'm going to devour this. I'm going to be present, having this passionate relationship with with life. And compassion literally means with passion. Can you have this, this, this relationship with suffering? Great. Thank you. Nicolas. Yes, thank you. It is wonderful to be here. I feel so inspired. And uh, my question relates to my initial statement about leaving Texas. And I have to say, Texas has been great to me. But I just asked what you were doing in Texas. (laughs) I am working at um, the University of Texas at UT for a year and a half. So it has great um and it's difficult not to get in, in, involved in the politics not to feel overtaken by the politics in general of texas right uh, which are not great uh <laughs> so, but texas i i love the weather so many great people and all of that and my question is how how can somebody do the work that needs to be done meaning the activist work the political work being aware of all the suffering that's been caused by some of the big forces uh, and uh, and at the same time not be distracted by that because I've seen so many of my friends are 
handling too much information. There's information coming in from everywhere all of the time. And I read somewhere that the world might not be at its worst right now. It's just that there's so much being uncovered. How do I remain aware and help without being swept away by, by the thing, by, by the changes, by the needs, by all of that? Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's kind of underneath. Thank you for that great question. It's kind of underneath exactly what we're talking about today. What is your motivation, right? If your motivation is strong enough, then whatever is arising is feeding into that desire to awaken. And for all of us, our motivation is imperfect. Sometimes it's strong enough and sometimes it's not. And if the if the insult that's coming from the world is strong enough, we'll be overwhelmed by that and it'll, it'll overwhelm the motivation. So you've got friends who are getting lost in what's happening to the planet, what's happening politically or environmentally, whatever it is. Going back to the very first stage that we talked about today, when that's happening, suffering is arising. Connection with God is being lost. One is being devoured by the world. It doesn't feel good. Going back to those qualities of laziness, then one can just get busy and say, okay, this doesn't feel good. I'm going to become an activist. I'm going to get all excited about things. That is a certainly a certain kind of laziness. And to the extent that you as an activist or as a human being or as a, a political being or whatever it is, a social being, to the extent that you're being lost in that, you're being ineffective and you're suffering. So that it, it, it really takes admitting that you're suffering, of getting quiet enough to feel that doing this is creating suffering in my life. I feel it in my body. I feel how I'm not connected to the other human beings around me. Once again, going back to Maharaji, one of the things that happened was there were moments in being around him. And I'm sure everybody has felt this, not necessarily with Maharaji, that there was so much love, so much connectedness with God, with the person you love in the world, whatever. And then that's gone temporarily. You can't find it. You're looking around. You're trying to find it. You thought you really loved somebody, and all of a sudden your heart is, is like a dry desert, right? Can you admit that it, it feels like that, and yet you remember, you remember that connectedness? And you have faith in that and you, you cultivate that and you chant and you say mantras and whatever you do. What you're asking, Nicholas, is a very large question. There's not a simple answer. I mean, it really is the predicament of the spiritual path. How can we be sense enough to the world, to all the suffering and not get lost in it? And it's cyclical. We'll, we'll get stuck in it. We'll notice we're stuck. We'll open up again. Oh, this feels great. Then we'll get stuck again. There's this great metaphor by Sri Aurobindo where he said, I was walking down the path on my way to freedom and God knocked me over and I fell in a mud puddle. And I got up and I shook my fist at God and said, why are you doing this to me? I'm on the roads of freedom here. And I walked a little further away down the road and he knocked me over again. And I got up again, but this time I didn't yell quite so loudly. And he knocked me over a few more times or she and then finally, I just got up and kept walking. So that when you notice you're lost, 
that God's knocked you over. The trick is how much are you going to complain and or how quickly are you just going to get back to being present and loving and, and being there? And even all that complaining is a kind of a laziness, right? It's instead of like feeling what's going on, you're, you're getting reactive about it all. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.